Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This podcast may have explicit content and also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Wednesday, November 28th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Hey, you know what? I don't need much more reporting on Nancy Pelosi's speakership. She has no opponent. She has the support of 203 out of 239 Democrats. She shall once more be speaker. The intrigue is not intriguing. Seth Moulton might not like it, but Seth Moulton will just have to live with it. Can we all sit with that? The disappointment and discomfort of Seth Moulton? Is it okay if we leave Representative Moulton a bit peeved? Because you know there is another branch of government, and in that branch we've got Captain Crazy Pants being a lunatic. Oh yeah, I know, they're co-equal branches of government. But when the Hill newspaper, as I think of it, the Hill consistently incendiary misleading Twitter account, headlines their story, quote, Democrats overwhelmingly nominate Pelosi as speaker amid rebellion. I just have to ask, rebellion? What rebellion? Not an uprising, barely a dissent. But there is an actual coup and an actual cuckoo down the street. As Donald Trump, oh, let's go through a few of the latest things. He threatened a private industry if it laid off employees, which it's going to do because of his tariffs. He said he's too smart to buy into climate change. He threatened the head of the Fed, which is, of course, an independent agency, and said, then didn't say, then maybe reasserted that there's going to be a shutdown if he doesn't get his wall funding. But then to the Washington Post, shutdown. A little while later to Politico, eh, maybe no shutdown. Here is Jake Sherman and Anna Palmer from the Politico Playbook audio briefing. It's worth noting, only a few hours earlier, the president sat down with Phil Rucker and Josh Dossie of the Washington Post and said, now, if we don't get it, will I get it done another way? I might get it done another way. There are other potential ways that I can do it. You saw what we did with the military, just coming in with the barbed wire and the fencing and various other things. That seems like he was relenting. But at 5 p.m. when we were in the Oval, he had just met with House Republican leadership, which might explain why he was more dug in. The Post interview was earlier in the day. Well, it could be that he changed his tack because of new information coming to light. You know, a recalibration based on inputs or could be mostly based on blood sugar. Could also be dependent on who they booked into the C block on Your World with Neil Cavuto. That often affects his mood. Oh, some more things. The president tweeted out a sentiment expressed by a Mike Pence parody account. And then, this is a big one, he spread a lie about the cost of immigrants to the federal government based on inaccurate figures, Canadian figures, gleaned from a conspiracy website. Would like to note this about those federal figures that he got wrong. Donald Trump does run the federal government. Oh, what else? Yeah, his lawyers are in touch with Paul Manafort's lawyers about Manafort's plea deal crumbling. His daughter denied that her using non-government approved email was anything like Hillary Clinton and what she did when she used non-government approved email. The Republicans are threatening to stall regular Senate business until they can get some clarity on the U.S. policy towards Saudi Arabia vis-a-vis the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. 
This is all brought on by Donald Trump's Ostrich Act. Wait a minute. Sometimes I forget zoology. The ostrich. Is that the one that sticks its head in the ground or its head up its ass? I, I forget. Anyway, let's just go back. Just, just humor me. Let's go back to that immigration tweet. I can't get my mind around it. Here is the AP reporting on that tweet. Now, the AP, the Associated Press, it's supposed to be dry. It's supposed to be factual. It's supposed to be a service to other news outlets who want their news coverage uninflected by opinion, sometimes even uninflected by writerly flair. Yet here is how the AP reports on this Donald Trump immigration lie. Washington, AP. President Donald Trump is spreading a false claim from supporters that people who are in the United States illegally receive more in federal assistance than the average American gets in Social Security benefits. Everything about the tweet he passed on to his 56 million listed Twitter followers Tuesday is wrong. And then the AP quotes the tweet and writes this. The facts, colon, wrong country, wrong numbers, wrong description of legal status of the recipients. Okay. But please, The Hill and other actual news outlets, please tell me more about the Nancy Pelosi rebellion. The 32 Democrats who in a closed session voted against Nancy Pelosi, but in an open session won't. I'm riveted because that's where the fate of the republic lies. On the show today, I spiel about some odd assertions in the New York Times. But first... In 2011, a mother by the name of Kim Brooks ran into a store to do an errand. In the car was her perfectly fine, not at all overheated child. And still, this became a case for the authorities. Now Kim Brooks has reflected on that, written about it, and she's here to talk about her ordeal. About nine years ago, Kim Brooks was doing an errand. She was visiting her parents in Virginia. She had her four-year-old in the back of the car, stops into the store. Four-year-old says, Mommy, I want to stay in the car. Kim says, okay, play with your iPad. Comes back, everything's fine. Why wouldn't it be? Goes home. Then she finds out that someone had taped her child in the car, alerted authorities, and this uh, do-gooder in extreme scare quotes forced a legal case and a lot of thinking upon Kim. She is now out with a book called Small Animals about her incident, but also about the overall theme of parenting in America. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. So about the incident itself, you must have gone how many hours without even giving literally probably a second thought to what you have done before the cops um, got in touch with you after you had left your visit from your parents? Yeah, it was a good, you know, seven or eight hours. Um, And I I, I write kind of the scene in the book of how it unfolded, which was very surreal. I went back to get my daughter and my bags. My mom drove us to the airport to head home to Chicago. And it was only then as I land in Chicago and meet my husband at the baggage claim that he says, you need to call your mom. So apparently when she had gotten back from the airport, 
the police come to her house because they had tracked tracked her down because I was driving her minivan and, uh, you know, had sort of questioned her and wanted to know where I was. And then she said, well, she's in the airport. And they said, oh, she's fleeing the state. And she said, what? <laughs> I suppose. I, I have no idea, yeah, what you're talking about. But no, she's going home to Chicago. So, yeah, it was a, it was just a strange way that it unfolded. And when did they get in touch with you? And were you on the phone with an actual cop? who was saying, we're going to charge you. What was that like? Well, what I did, so so I had never had the police after me before. It hadn't happened. That's, yeah. what, that's what a lot of recidivist criminals say. I know, I, like I know. I yeah. mean, you know, with the exception of a like a speeding ticket. So I, you know, I really had no idea what I was doing, but luckily I've seen enough police shows like Homicide yes. and things like that. That I did know, you know, you're not supposed to really actually talk to the police. Yeah. Unless you get a lawyer. You lawyered like, up. Like this is I lawyered up right away because and at first I sort of worried like you know, am I overreacting? Because the police will always say to you, well, oh, we just want to get some information, right? right? But later I realized, no, that was exactly the right thing because I, I interviewed women in the book who did the same thing. The police say, oh, we, we just want to make sure everything's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, there's one woman actually who lived on the Upper West Side here and the sa- almost identical thing happened to her on the way. She was in Connecticut with her daughter, visiting family, same scenario. And the police call her and say, you know, we just want to talk to you um, figure out, just hear what happened, make sure everything's fine. Yeah. And we should know, cool day, windows crack cool open, day, absolutely right, no right. no, danger. no physical locked. danger. Yeah. Minutes, we're not talking a half hour. We're no, people five, left five six minutes, right. right. And in this case, you know, so she t- she says, yeah, well, this is what happened. It was five minutes. My daughter had fallen asleep in the car. I didn't want to interrupt her nap, you know. And he's the, the police officer at the end of this conversation says, okay, well, you know, based on what you've told me, you're probably going to be arrested. Mm-hmm. You know, and she's basically confessed, again in scare quotes, but to yeah. this crime. So I, I would only learn about those cases later in doing research for the book. But so at the time, I got a lawyer kind of to, to help me navigate. When you find these other cases, is it usually the the do-gooder citizen who uh, narks on the mom, or is it a cop observing the behavior himself or herself? Um, I've seen both. You know, in in a couple cases, it was the case of Deborah Harrell that I I write about kind of extensively. She let her daughter play in a park because she had no childcare in the summer, and she was South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Well, she had a, she was a manager at McDonald's. She had a nine-year-old daughter, very very responsible let her play at a park where a bunch of her friends were. And in that case, it was another parent who called and said, this you know, this child's been abandoned. Yeah. Well, with the Deborah Harrell case, I remember we have a show, The uh, Political Gab Fest, and that was a two-week-long point of debate because a couple of the panelists said, you know, if they saw a nine-year-old playing in the park for hours, this wasn't a five-minute situation, right. they might call the police because they thought they were doing the right responsible thing and they were concerned about, legitimately concerned about the welfare of the child. And one of the counterpoints to that was, very white person thing to do, you shouldn't introduce the police into the lives of a black person willy-nilly. On the other hand, you're a white person and people have called the police, I guess, because they were concerned about the welfare of a minor and they they did it with a white child also. Right. Right. I mean, this is to me one of the most disturbing elements of all of these cases is that we've got into this moment, this sort of fascistic uh, moment where, you know, people, the people who want to help think that the 
best thing to do is immediately is to call the police. Uh-huh. And, oh, the police will sort it out. Call the authorities. Not in cases where there's any kind of emergency taking place, you know? so Yeah, especially your case, because it's not like they told the police while the person, while your child was in the car, right? They ratted you out afterwards. After they saw everything was safe. That was the thing that, right, was particularly disturbing, was that they watched me come back to the car. They watched my child, you know, my child was fine. I got in the car, we drove away. And that, you know, you would think if there, if it had just been a matter of concern, then, you know, they'd say at that point, oh, well, everything was fine, yeah. you know. When you looked into this more societally, when you examined the ripples of your own situation and looked at what our attitudes were. What did you find and what change in attitudes and parenting and safety did you find in our country over time? Well, the changes are profound in sort of every regard in terms of norms around how much parents are letting children be unsupervised, how much um, freedom in terms of physical space, how far children are allowed to roam from their house, how much independence they have in terms of choosing their own activities, free play, independent play. Like, by all of these measures, it's been a complete transformation in just the course of one generation. But, you know, bike helmets are safe, right? And baby-proofing the house, hard edges on furniture is something that we all do, not because society forces us, because we don't want the kids getting cut. Right. So there's some logic to it, and you could take anything too far. What's the sign that it's gone too far? What I always think of is... is cost-benefit analysis. So there's a chapter in the book called The Cost of Fear. And, you know, I, I like to always just preface this by saying... When this all started, I was not a dedicated free-range parent. I was a pretty, like, generalized anxiety disorder parent. Yeah. I was very I'm very anxious, very cautious. And so I'm completely pro-bike helmet, pro-seatbelt, because in those cases, you say, well, what's the cost of wearing your seatbelt? It's really not that big a deal to click your belts, right? And it's a huge safety benefit. Same with helmets, same with things like that. The problem is that when you take something like, well, we're not going to let children play in, or have any independence because of the chance of, I don't even know what, you know, child abduction, which I talk about in the book, which is an extremely insignificant yeah. um, statistical probability. Stranger abduction was this huge moral panic back in the 70s and 80s, and it almost never happens. And the stat in your book is that you could leave your kid outside for 750,000 years. years. Statistically. <laughs> which is not good for the child to leave him outside. That's just a long time. 000. Yeah. <laughs> Although the abductor might age out of that behavior as well. You never know. Who knows if the planet will even be around then? That's you know, right. So puts everything in perspective. <laughs> right. So, you know, you could say, uh, that, you know, one person I interview in the book, the cognitive scientist I interview, had a great thing where she said, you know, some children every year in this country probably fall down when they're running or walking around and hit their heads yeah. and are injured or killed. One or two kids, pro- that probably happens to in the country every year. So we could say, you know, all kids need to be in wheelchairs. Sure. Because you just never know. And you don't want your kid to be that kid that is running and falls down and hits their head. But we don't do that because we recognize that would be a high cost right. to their physical health and development. But she, But she says sort of, but we are doing it when it comes to their psychological and emotional development. So I'm big on looking at the cost and looking at the benefits. And I think the problem is that we've got into this this point where 
when it comes to safety, we're not looking at the cost of our fears and the cost of our anxieties. Yes. Yeah. There was the case in New York City of the woman from a Scandinavian country leaves her, leaves her kid outside and uh, she gets narked on. There are, on occasion, uh, urban overparenting examples. Well, she, and it's, that's interesting you bring that up. So she, after my book was excerpted in the Times, she actually reached out to me a couple uh-huh. months ago. Her case was fascinating, you know, because I had read, I'd heard about it, yeah. but then I talked to her at length. And um, I mean, that was amazing. You know, she, she, people say, oh, she left her kid, her baby on the street of New York. That's actually not exactly what happened. It was a restaurant that had a closed in patio, yeah. like on the sidewalk. She had her baby in a carriage next to the window and was sitting at a table at the window. Yeah. And this is a custom in, you know, in Scandinavia. This is what everyone does rather than bring the baby into the smoke filled. Back then there was smoking in New York. This was a few years ago. Right. Yeah, yeah. Rather than bring your baby into the smoke filled restaurant, they leave them on the sidewalk and this is what everyone does. And so this woman does what everyone does in her country. She was she was handcuffed. She was arrested. They took her 15-month-old baby away for 3 days, yeah. traumatized the kid. And she said the most interesting thing to me during this interview. She said that she felt like in when she reflected on this in later years, she said it was like going to Saudi Arabia and being arrested because she hadn't realized women weren't allowed to drive. Mm-hmm. Or women weren't allowed to walk down the street unaccompanied by a man. And the more I thought about that, I said, that's right. Of course, she she comes to our country and she doesn't know that, oh, in this country, women aren't allowed to be out of arm's reach from their children. And women are literally being arrested for not for, for taking their eyes off their children. So I'm very interested in the way that you don't have to, to take away women's freedom if you take away all of children's freedom. Because women are still the, in, more often than not doing their, their more than their fair share of the childcare. They're the ones who are responsible for their children. If you say children can have no freedom, then what you're really doing is disempowering women. The person who taped you, I have some amount of, uh, I think they made the wrong choice. But, you know, our societal laws, our norms, the, you know, relatively not earth-shattering sanction that you got, which was 100 hours of community service, that shouldn't all depend on a citizen not doing what he or she thinks is right for the community. I mean, to some extent, maybe they made a wrong choice, but their orientation was the protection of children. And people are going to have a a bunch of different attitudes on that. To me, it comes down to the cops not charging and the legal system being wise enough to say, please, this is not something to handcuff a woman and, and, and separate her from her child, but this is not something that we need to put through the system, that we need to have 100 hours of community service, and there's a lot of costs to all of that. Maybe it's because most of these cases don't go to trial, but I think that that is the problem. I don't know exactly how to change it, but I, if I had to point my finger, it would be to that part of the entire chain of events. I mean, I agree. I, I definitely think that that's the first step, is like, let's stop arresting parents for doing these kinds of things. But I don't know. I think that it is a much bigger issue. And, you know, the problem is that these laws are vague and they're meant to be vague because by having vague laws, then you allow judges and police officers to sort of use their discretion. The problem is that the norms around parenthood, it's not just, I mean, I understand what you're saying that, you know, you might raise your kids differently than someone else and like, that's fine. But what we've seen is like, 
the overall norms of what we think of as a good parent practicing, you know, safe parenting have changed so radically that it's not just a criminal justice issue. That now when we see a child that literally doesn't have an adult's eyes on them, we think that that's an emergency. But the criminal justice system makes its choices based on the societal norms. But what I would argue is it seems impossible to consciously go about changing a society's norms. It seems possible to instruct the criminal justice system on this one point. You're not even doing yourself a favor. And I think books like yours and conversations like yours and people being horrified by the overreaction of the police. I think in New York City, the story wasn't horrible mom leaves her child unattended. Maybe that was the first day story in the tabloids. But eventually that story became, what a horrible piece of policing that was. Mm -hmm. If that is the story, I think Mm -hmm. that change is much more possible than, you know, changing everyone's opinion or the majority of everyone's opinion. Yeah, I I think that that's a really good point. I mean, someone might think that giving my kid non-organic apple juice (laughs) is poisoning them, right? And and they can think that. That's fine. But the, the police shouldn't be able to arrest me for that. Kim Brooks is the author of and is responsible for the care of small animals. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. And now the spiel. I've been interested in the reporting, the sad case of the missionary who was killed when he ventured into North Sentinel Island in the Pacific. It's uh, it's an Indian-owned, controlled, uh, policed territory, loosely, loosely administrated, there you go, territory. And this guy was trying to give Bibles to people who really, really, really didn't want Bibles. And he, he caught his death. No one has ever figured out, the New York Times tells me, why they are so hostile to outsiders on the North Sentinel Island, and their language remains a mystery. But I'm going to quote some New York Times reporting. It's a mystery why they think it's a mystery. So here's the New York Times. In the late 19th century, a British naval officer described stepping onto a remote coral-fringed island in the Andaman Sea and encountering one of the world's most enigmatic hunter-gatherer tribes. Fascinated, the officer, Maurice Vidal Portman, basically kidnapped several islanders. He took them back to his house on a bigger island where the British ran a prison and watched the adults grow sick and die. After returning the children to the island, he ended his experiment, calling it a failure. The Times goes on. Over the next century, few outsiders ever returned. And then I will quote the words that I quoted at the top of the spiel. No one has ever figured out exactly why they're so hostile to outsiders. Yeah, I think, I think they figured it out. I think you just figured it out right there. You've actually, if you go back and read the preceding few paragraphs, you've actually unlocked the mystery. It's kind of hiding in plain sight. I don't know, maybe you can ask the Incans or Aboriginal Australians or most of the Sioux, Cree, or Cherokee peoples of America why these particular islanders were so inhospitable to outsiders. Why the poor Yelp review. You know, reporting about North Sentinel Island sometimes uses the phrase a forbidden island. Now, I do have to say, the other day I was at an Asian restaurant and on the menu was the forbidden rice. But when I ordered the forbidden rice, they brought me a bowl of the forbidden rice. But when a Western missionary visited North Sentinel Island, they killed that guy. I would say 
in one of these examples, the use of forbidden was more apt than in the other. The case of the North Sentinelese, perhaps wisely firing arrows into a visitor, seems a lot less debatable to me than it does to other people. And while the advisability of visiting a deadly place to spread the word of the Lord is not in dispute, not a good idea, it still struck me as breaking faith with basic tenets of humanity not to feel a little sorry for the dead guy. I mean, Mitt Romney was a missionary. He got to go to France and a little later got to run for president. But then the New Republic, in covering this story, ran a headline on its Twitter feed. Did missionary deserve to die for visiting Ireland? Wow, that is a tough one. I mean, what's tough about it is to come up with the words before the answer no. Is it more of a uh, no or an obviously not? And then there are the words after no. So that would go something like, uh, no, you idiots or uh, no, you monsters. And no, why don't you reassess your license to ever make a moral argument again? By the way, most of the people who answered that tweet said, yes, he did deserve to die, which is odd because it didn't seem like those Twitter responders who left location services on so I could see where they were tweeting from did so from the Fertile Crescent or the Indo-Gangetic Plain. In other words, they and their ancestors probably took over from someone else. I am sad to say I can no longer update you on what the New Republic Twitter feed is saying as I have unsubscribed to the New Republic Twitter feed. Uh, but maybe I'm missing out on their latest, is it too late to disembowel Al Franken? Maybe that's getting a lot of likes. Now, speaking of Al Franken and of odd phrasings in the New York Times, there was this long expose of Les Moonves or one particular aspect of, I guess we could call it the scandal, his documented cases of sexual assault. That's probably a more accurate way to talk about that. Many women who he forced himself on and their retaliation against him, they either objected to his advances or in several cases, they objected not just to his advances, but to the fact that he performed sexual acts on them that they didn't want performed. There is a word for that, by the way. It is a four-letter word. It rhymes with crepe. But how does the New York Times phrase things? At CBS, rumors spread that Mr. Moonves had a hashtag me too problem. Turns out Kurt Waldheim had a resume problem. Perhaps you could look at members of the Manson family as having a knife storage problem. The Times story, and by the way, their phrasing is way too cautious, but credit for them because they did the reporting and now I know about it, even if, you know, they soft pedal their conclusions. But it was very odd. It was very tawdry. It was very sad. And I do not want to lose focus on the real victims, including a then promising young actress who Moonves assaulted. That's according to the Times story. But so much of the report details the actions of a 75-year-old washed-up agent named Marv Dower. Here's a description of Dower. Casting directors ignored his emails. His finances were precarious. He had nearly lost his home to foreclosure. But the Times also writes, in reality, his client list had dwindled to a few B-list actors. I was fixated on that phrase, B-list actors. What is the B-list? I think we know what the A-list is, right? The Rock, Will Smith, Jennifer Lawrence, perhaps Michael B. Jordan will soon become Michael A. Jordan as his trajectory keeps improving. Interview with the director of Creed 2 tomorrow. But you know, Kathy Griffin had that show, My Life on the D-List. Now, she's a comic and comics engage in exaggeration for humorous effect. So let us think of Kathy Griffin as a C-lister. So then who would be a B-lister? 
I'm going to nominate Bruce Boxleitner. I like that guy. Also, two B's in his name. No, no. I went and I researched who were Marv Dower's B-list clients. They include Erica Duke, whose credits, these are her recent credits, Super Shark, Titanic 2, Mega Shark versus Crocosaurus. She, by the way, has a IMDb star meter ranking of 28,808, which is to say there are 28,800 more stars above her. The B-list, quite expansive. Uh, Marv Dower also represents a Carlisha Hurley. Carlisha Hurley is a U.S. award-winning L.A.-based Australian actress. She played the lead role in the feature film Wrapped and is co-host of the series Hashtag Me For TV, a next-generation talk show. Carlisha Hurley has 530 Twitter followers. He also represents Sarah Higginson, who you may have seen in Silent Night, Deadly Night 5, The Toy Maker, a guy named Alex Watson, who has two or three acting credits, but also pretty high up in his list of credits. Leprechaun, Back to the Hood, Straight to Video, Casting Associate. Another of his 12 B-list clients is a guy named Michael Bernardi. Wait, the name Michael Bernardi sounds familiar. Uh, Michael Bernardi uh, crushes it as Mortka, <laughs> and he's here right now. Hey, Michael. Hi there. Oh, that was just episode 515. Michael Bernardi was the guest. He was on Broadway in Fiddler on the Roof. He was great. His dad was a famous Broadway actor. His dad played Tevya, and he was understudying for Tevya. But if Michael Bernardi is wondering why his film career is not going that well, maybe it's Marv. Marv Dower spent a good deal of his time taking the fact that one of his clients was, according to the New York Times, sexually assaulted by Les Moonves, and he used that to get almost no work for her and no work for almost all of his other clients. He tried. The Times interviewed him. They had his texts with Moonves. But given the leverage he had over the mogul, he could just not scare up decent roles, or really any roles, for his clients. There in the story, detailing the tawdry sadness of Marv, they have him giving Les Moonves' son a baseball signed by Reggie Smith. Not Reggie Jackson, Reggie Smith, who was a pretty good player who retired in 1982, and there is no way that a kid would have any idea who Reggie Smith was. Also, there is every way... Les Moonves would have access to about 3,000 players more prominent and impressive to his son than Reggie Smith. Marv Dower got Les Moonves to come to his birthday party, and then Marv tried to impress Les by texting him, quote, when you get to the valet, tell him that Marv Dower said you are a VIP, so your car will be parked very close and you can get out of there. Or this one, I'll quote this, while Mr. Dower was on an annual fishing trip to Minnesota, he visited the Spam Museum in his hometown and bought T-shirts to give Mr. Moonves and his son. The plan eventually evolved into Les Moonves arranging for a one-day acting gig for that woman he assaulted all those years ago. It would pay $5,000 to play, quote, a big friendly woman in overalls, and she turned the role down. Marv Dower went to the Times with tales of trinkets and valet parking favors and Reggie Smith autographs. And I would say right now there's about a dozen actors in Hollywood looking for new representation. They might be happy to have been called B-list actors, but I think they desperately need to get away from this 75-year-old agent who is still deluded into thinking that he knows how to influence people with tchotchkes and pleadings and pathetic text messages. 
because it turns out to Les Moonves, not just the t-shirts were spam. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader have just producer star meters in the low five figures, but they're moving up all the time. TJ Raphael, senior producer of Slate Podcasts, is eager to monetize and promote past just shows, especially if I interviewed anyone managed by Paul Manafort or Jerome Corsi. The gist. Did you know in Ceylon, you get a 10-year jail sentence for trafficking in stolen bamboo? The facts. Wrong country, wrong numbers, wrong description of legal status of the recipients. Oh, shut up, AP. Who asked you? Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.